Amen. Turn to Mark chapter 8 if you have your copy of God's Word. Mark chapter 8. I think this is the 16th or 17th installment in our series through the Gospel of Mark. Finding and following Jesus. Before I get into the message, I want to thank the church family for the gracious and thoughtful words uh, that were either spoken to us uh, last Sunday night at the reception or written in a card. My wife and I went home after our reception for our 15th ministry anniversary last Sunday, and we stayed up reading all the cards that were written. And I'm telling you, I think that's going to get me through another decade of ministry. I'm saving those suckers because some of the kindest words that people in this church have ever spoken to me, they wrote in those cards. And thank you for that. I mean that. Thank you for that. I, I never quite understood what my dad meant when he said, it's the encouragement of God's people that keeps me going from week to week. Now I understand. I understand. I, 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 don't, I shouldn't need that uh, to keep faithful to God's call, but it sure helps. And I'm so thankful for a church that prays for me and encourages me along with my wife as well. Mark chapter 8, the title of the message today is Proximity and Perception. Proximity and Perception. I want to start the message by showing you a few pictures on the screen to see if you can make out the object in each picture. Ready? Here's the first picture. See if, don't, don't answer out loud, but just in your mind, see if you can make out what that object is. Picture one. Here's the next picture. See if you can make out what that picture is. Let's show them the third picture. That's the second picture. Let's show them the third picture. <laughs> She's playing tricks on you. It's pretty hard, if you're like me at least, to figure out what those objects are. Let me show you a more complete view to give you an idea of what those pictures look like when they're zoomed out. Here's picture number one. It was a whistle. How many guessed it was a whistle? Raise your hand. Nobody? All right. Here's picture number two. Old school telephone. How many... Guess that. All right, we have one back there, one back there. I see those hands over there. God bless you, liars. Bless you. <laughs> Picture number three. How many guessed that was a bell? Raise your hand. Not very many people. The reason why you couldn't make out the object in the first pictures was because you couldn't see enough of it to know what it actually was. Uh, my point is really simple. Sometimes the closer you are to something, the harder it is to see. Close proximity doesn't guarantee good perception. Remember that. Close proximity doesn't guarantee good perception. Now that idea is true with our physical eyes, but I want to show you how it's also true with our spiritual eyes. That we can be in close proximity to God, but that doesn't guarantee that we'll always have good perception of God. Our good perception of what God is trying to accomplish in our lives. Such was the case with Jesus' closest followers in the Gospel of Mark. Of course, I'm talking about his 12 original disciples. These guys walked with Jesus everywhere. They talked with Jesus every day. By this time in Mark's gospel, they've been up close and personal with the miracles and the ministry of Jesus. 
There was no one in terms of proximity that was closer to Jesus Christ than these 12 men. Yet at this point in their life, the disciples were still struggling to perceive some things about who Jesus was and what he came to do. And that's what I want to show you from Mark 8, how our proximity as disciples today to Jesus can often be accompanied by a lack of perception of what Jesus can do. Now, I want to be clear. We ought to be as close to Jesus as we possibly can be. In fact, you can't be too close to Jesus. However, we should also know that our close proximity to him doesn't guarantee good perception of him. The text shows us that. Let's begin reading in verse 1. Mark 8, verse 1. In those days, the multitude being very great and having nothing to eat, Jesus called his disciples unto him and saith unto them, I have compassion on the multitude because they have now been with me three days and have nothing to eat. And if I send them away fasting to their own houses, they will faint by the way, for divers of them came from far. So the chapter starts off by telling us about another large crowd that's gathered around Jesus and they're hungry. If you remember back in chapter six, a couple chapters ago, Jesus fed over 5,000 people with the miraculous multiplication of five loaves of bread and two fishes. Now he's surrounded by another hungry and large crowd. Verse nine of chapter eight tells us this crowd wasn't 5,000 people. It was 4,000 people. The difference between the two crowds, the one in chapter 6 and one in chapter 8, is not just the size, though. There's also a difference in the type of people. In the feeding of the 5,000, Jesus was mainly feeding Jewish people. In the feeding of the 4,000, Jesus was mainly feeding Gentile people. I know that because chapter 8 and verse 1 starts with a phrase that says, in those days. That's a transitional phrase that connects what's going to happen in chapter 8 with what already happened in chapter 7. And what already happened in chapter 7 happened in a Gentile region. Now, I'm not just trying to look smart. This is an important detail in the story. Because through this miracle to, to the Gentiles, Jesus wanted his disciples to perceive and understand that his ministry was not just to the Jew. He wanted, to, he wanted them to see that though his kingdom would indeed start with the Jews, it would expand out into the entire world. See, here's what I believe Jesus is doing through this second feeding miracle. It's not so much for the people gathered around that are hungry. It's for the 12 that are helping him. And he's revealing himself to his disciples as the bread of life who is sufficient to meet the needs of the entire world. That's both Jew and Gentile. Now, this is important. Because Jesus is revealing more and more of him, himself to the disciples in hopes that they would perceive the essence of his person and his power and his mission. Now the question is this, would the disciples get it? Are they going to see it? Do they perceive it? Can they understand what Jesus is trying to get them to understand? Verse 4 gives us indication that they were struggling. And his disciples answered him, from whence can a man satisfy these men with bread here in the wilderness? Now, if you're thinking with me and you've been studying through the gospel of Mark, this right here, this response from the disciples should leave you dumbfounded. Almost frustrated because just two chapters ago, they saw Jesus take a little boy's lunch and feed an even greater crowd than what they were faced with in this chapter. Yet when Jesus wants to do it again, 
they're in a panic about how they're going to get the necessary provision. Now you would think that, that, that when the disciples are confronted for the second time with a crowd that needs bread, but they don't have much bread to give them, that their response would be something like this. Well, that's a great idea, Jesus. We have compassion for these people too. We only have about seven loaves, but that's okay because just a few weeks ago we saw you multiply just five loaves of bread. We're good. We really believe that you are the bread of life capable and sufficient to meet the needs of the entire world, including these 4,000 hungry Gentiles. So we're just going to buckle up and we're going to pray and we're just going to get on board with you. We can't wait to see what you're going to do this time. But these guys didn't recall even once the miracle of the 5,000. Instead, they despaired and complained instantly of their insufficiency. The rest of the chapter, verses 5 through 9, tell of how uh, Jesus bypassed the disciples' lack of perception and he fed the people anyway. Read with me. And he asked them, how many loaves have ye? And his disciples said, seven. He commanded the people to sit down on the ground and he took the seven loaves and gave thanks and break. Gave to his disciples to set before them and they did set them before the people. And they had a few small fishes. And he blessed and commanded to set them also before them. So they did eat and were filled. And they took up of the broken meat that was left seven baskets. And they that had eaten were about 4,000. And he sent them away. Now don't let this just go over your head. That's an amazing miracle. It's incredible what Jesus just did. Mark, he's very concise in telling us about it. He doesn't embellish. He doesn't exaggerate. He doesn't give us a lot of detail. But we got to know that if Jesus can feed 4,000 people, which is seven loaves of bread and a few small fish, that's a big deal. Thank you for agreeing. Wouldn't you agree, though, that the disciples, after seeing two feeding miracles to this degree, should be able to perceive by now that Jesus is indeed the bread of life sufficient to meet the needs of the entire world? I mean, they had a front row seat and a backstage pass to these miracles. In fact, they've had a front row seat to see all of Christ's miracles up to this point. They've seen him take a demon-possessed man, clothe him, and put him in his right mind. They had a front row seat to see him heal a woman who had a blood disease for over 12 years and the doctors couldn't help her. They followed him to the house of Jairus where they saw Jesus raise his 12-year-old daughter from the dead. They were in a boat twice. Caught in a storm when Jesus bossed Mother Nature around and it obeyed him. One time they even saw him walking on the water during the storm. Hey, they've been up close and personal with Jesus this entire time. Surely after this second feeding miracle they see it. Surely they grasp it. Surely by now they're able to perceive and understand who Jesus is and what he came to do. Well, Mark will let us know in just a minute. First, he's going to show us a group of men called the Pharisees, who were not seeing Jesus for who he really was, not because they were unable to, but because they were unwilling to. Look at verse 10. And straightway he entered into a ship with his disciples and came into the parts of Dalmanutha. And the Pharisees came forth and began to question with him, seeking of him a sign from heaven, tempting him. And he sighed deeply in his spirit and saith, why did this generation seek after a sign? Verily I say unto you, there shall no sign be given unto this generation. And he left them. And entering into the ship again, departed to the other side. Watch here. The Pharisees did what they'd done often. They cornered Jesus with these accusatory questions. They weren't curious. You know that. They weren't sincere. They were antagonistic. 
The verse says they were testing him. They, they told Jesus that they wanted to see a, a miraculous sign from heaven. They, they wanted him to do something that would authenticate that he is who he says he, he is. And Mark says Jesus responded with a sigh. If you're a husband, you know what this means. If you're a teenager, you know what this means. When your parents or your wife, in the midst of a conversation, they respond this way. You ever gotten any of that? Can I get a witness in here? Someone's exasperated at that point. Someone is frustrated. Someone is fed up with your side of the conversation. And Jesus sighs and he asks them a rhetorical question, which I believe is an indictment on the Pharisees. He said, what, why does this generation, you, your generation of religious people, why do you still seek after a sign? You know what Jesus is telling them? He said, I've shown you plenty of signs that would authenticate who I am. You've been there when I've done these things. You've seen it with your own eyes, yet you're still demanding more proof that I'm the son of God. You're still demanding a sign to authenticate that I'm the Messiah, the bread of life, sufficient to meet the needs of the entire world. Hey, Pharisees, I want you to know something. I'm not giving you a sign. I'm not giving you a sign now, and I'm not giving you a sign later. You will receive no more revelations. And Mark left the detail right there at the beginning of verse 13 that should bring chills up our body. And he left them. Don't miss that detail. Jesus departed without giving them another chance to repent. Because that's what he ultimately does to those who continually refuse his revelation. There, there comes a time when he gives no more signs, no more help and understanding, no more invitations to come. Can I, can I just stop right here and say this? If you're not saved in here today... That is, you don't know Jesus as your personal Savior. You don't understand the gospel and that Jesus died, was buried, and rose again to pay for all of your sins, both now and forever. And you never put your trust in his finished work in the cross and that alone. Can I speak to you for a moment? Jesus is kindly revealing himself to you today. He's doing that through his holy word. He's doing that through his Holy Spirit. He's working in your heart. He's drawing you to himself. You might not understand it all, but you know God's doing something in your life at this very moment. If that's you, don't push him away. Don't ignore him. Don't put him off. Don't procrastinate because you never know what opportunity might be your last. Boast not thyself of tomorrow. For thou knowest not what a day may bring forth. If God is revealing himself to you, inviting you to repent of your sin and trust in the gospel, I urge you to respond to his revelation today. Because you don't want it to be said of you what was said of the Pharisees. Jesus left them. That's what can happen for the unbeliever who refuses to perceive who Jesus is. But what about his followers? What about those close to him? Because this chapter is ultimately about what Jesus wants his followers to perceive and recognize him. So we're back to the question. Would Jesus' own disciples fail to perceive who he was and what he could do? Would they be guilty of the same spiritual blindness that Jesus just rebuked in the Pharisees? Look at verse 14. Now the disciples have forgotten to take bread. Neither had they in the ship with them more than one loaf. These guys are knuckleheads. 
irresponsible. Jesus just gave them provision, seven basketfuls of leftovers, and they didn't bring them with them in the boat. And you know one loaf's not enough to feed a bunch of hungry dudes. No doubt the unspoken tension, or maybe spoken tension, because Peter was in the boat, so it's probably spoken, was this, who's going to eat and who's not? And they're looking at each other. And the two sons of thunder, James and John, are probably saying, I got the loaf. We get the loaf. But you know what? Jesus knew that the real problem in the boat that day wasn't a lack of bread, wasn't a lack of provision. The real problem was a lack of perception. And so instead of multiplying the one loaf and turning it into seven or 12 or whatever, you know what Jesus did? He taught them a spiritual lesson, gave them a spiritual warning because he identifies real problems of the heart, not just exterior needs. And look at verse 15. And he charged them saying, take heed, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and of the leaven of Herod. He said, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. Leaven in the Bible is sometimes a picture of sin. So then what sin is he warning the disciples about here? He's warning them of this. Don't develop the leaven or sin of spiritual blindness like the Pharisees had. Jesus is telling his disciples, hey, even though you're in a boat with me physically, you're actually worlds apart from me spiritually. You're close to me in proximity, but you're struggling with your perception of me. And disciples, I need to warn you that you're beginning to develop the spiritual blindness of the Pharisees. Now, you would think this kind of warning would shake the disciples up, would get their attention. They'd put down the loaf for bread and say, yes, sir. But their response shows just how much they were lacking in spiritual depth. Look at verse 16. And they reasoned among themselves saying, it is because we have no bread. Did I say these guys were knuckleheads already? Did I tell you that? The disciples take Jesus' statement about leaven so weighty, so deep, but they take it as a criticism for forgetting the bread. And they started reasoning among themselves, which means they were arguing among themselves whose fault it was. Are you catching this? The disciples, disciples, the disciples, (laughs) ah, their failure to perceive the spiritual metaphor that Jesus was trying to teach them is proof. Watch here. That even though they may be closer to Jesus in proximity than the Pharisees were, their perception of him was no better. My question is this, how is that possible? How do 12 guys who've been on a boat with Jesus when he stopped the storm, who've been on a hillside with Jesus two different times when he multiplied bread to feed thousands, who've seen so much in so little time, how could these men lack such spiritual perception at this point? Jesus answers that question in verse 17. And when Jesus knew it, what did he know? He knew what their problem was. He saith unto them, why reason ye? Why do you argue? Because you have no bread. Perceive ye not yet? Neither understand, have ye your heart yet hardened? Said so disciples, you can't see it. And here's the problem. You have a hard heart. Your lack of perception is the result of a hard heart. Of course, they weren't hardened to Jesus. 
No, they followed him. They believed in him. They were hardened to his purpose, his, his mission, his work, his miracles, his ability, his, his power, his sufficiency. And do you know where their problems stem from? Familiarity with Jesus. It stemmed from close proximity to Jesus. I'll say it this way, the, the repeated exposure to Jesus' teaching and his working when not reflected upon or acted upon worked a progressive insensitivity over time in their hearts. Say it again, the repeated exposure to Jesus' teaching and Jesus' working when they didn't reflect upon it and they didn't act upon it worked a progressive insensitivity over time in their hearts. The disciples were close in proximity to Jesus and that was a good thing, but their close proximity didn't guarantee a good perception. And over time, they stopped nurturing their spiritual understanding. They didn't give their heart regular spiritual maintenance. They didn't stop going to church. They just slowly started to develop spiritual blindness. Even though Jesus, the bread of life, was standing in their boat. That's tragic. You would expect the Pharisees to misunderstand Jesus. You would expect the Pharisees to fail to see him for who he really was and what he came to do. But it's sad, so sad to see those closest to him struggle with the same thing. Yet if Jesus' original 12 disciples can struggle with this, we can too. We can be close to Jesus in proximity. By the way, you're at church. Pretty close to him. But at the same time, we can slowly begin developing spiritual blindness. Without even know it, knowing it, we can develop a dullness of mind and an insensitivity of heart. Listen, just like the disciples had Jesus in their boat, you have Jesus living in your heart through the Holy Spirit. So it's safe to say that, that if you're saved today, and I hope you are, you're always in close proximity to the Lord. Always, whether you're in church or not, Jesus is living in you. He's not in your boat. He's in your heart. But having the Holy Spirit in you doesn't always guarantee a sensitivity to the Spirit and a good perception of the Spirit's working in your life. Hey, you can get to the point, if you're not careful, where you hear three sermons a week but not get much out of any of them. You can read your Bible every day but not perceive what it is the Holy Spirit is speaking to you about. You can try and pray, but it feels like your prayers aren't getting past the ceiling and you and the Holy Spirit feel worlds apart. The Holy Spirit can, can cause you to interact with a person who's lost in need of a Savior, needs someone to invite them to church, but you've grown so insensitive to those divine appointments that you're missing them every single day. Not because they're not there, you're just not perceiving them. How does that happen? It happens when, like the disciples, you fail to appropriate what the Spirit is doing in your life. It fails to happen, or it happens when, when you come to church and you fail to say yes to the Spirit. You ignore the Spirit and, and reject the Spirit and quench the Spirit. And if you do that enough, you become progressively insensitive to the Spirit. You've been there before? Another way this can be applied is to us as members of Fellowship Baptist Church. Boy, I think of all the salvations and 
baptisms we've had this year already. It's been a great thing. If you haven't been around very long, then, then let me tell you, God's been working in our church in a very powerful way in the last year. Between those that got saved on Easter Sunday to, to some, new te- some teenagers getting saved at youth camp to, to several young people getting saved at vacation Bible school to a young lady named Taylor that walked the aisle and got saved last Sunday morning to, let, to, to people that got saved in their homes like Tess Fitzgerald. People that came into our offices during the week and accepted Christ like Justin Alexander and Mon Mar- Marquez and Todd and Sherry King and Andrea and Saul Sanchez. And that, that's just to mention a few. We've got new members that have been baptized and are getting assimilated into the life of Fellowship Baptist Church. It's a, it's a great thing. I wonder if seeing God do all this at fellowship has hindered your perception of what he wants to continue to do at fellowship. I'm here to tell you, God's not done. We've had a good first half of the year, but we just can't set things on cruise control around here and get comfortable and get satisfied. Church, listen, don't let your proximity to what God has done in our church hinder your perception of what God still wants to do in our church. Maybe like the disciples, you you face a need today. Maybe you don't face the need of feeding 4,000 people, but it's very real to you still. A rebellious child that You're worried about a sense of loneliness, almost chronic loneliness that discourages you. Anxiety over a situation that you can't shake, a a fragmented relationship within your family or otherwise that breaks your heart. An unanswered prayer, a chronic illness, and, and even though God has proven himself to you before because you're lacking spiritual perception right now, you're struggling to believe that he can provide for you today. How do we address this? If our hearts are hardened and we lack spiritual perception of who Jesus is and what Jesus can do for us, how do do we address this? What do we do about it? That question is answered in verses 18 through 21 by Jesus asking his 12 disciples a series of questions. Look at it. Having eyes, see ye not. And having ears, hear ye not. Watch this. Do ye not remember? When I break the five loaves among 5,000, he starts giving them a quiz. How many baskets full of fragments took you up? They say unto him, 12. Right answer. Question two, when the seven among 4,000, how many baskets full of fragments took you up? And they said, seven. Right answer. And he said unto them, how is it that ye do not understand? Jesus asked them, did you see that last phrase of verse 18? Do ye not remember? That's the problem. They're not remembering. And then he was gracious and he began to ask them some questions to probe their memory. And the questions were regarding the two feeding miracles. What does this tell us? Watch here. It tells us that there is something, something special and powerful about intentionally remembering what God has done. That helps us to believe in what God can do. Jesus shows us that that a key to nurturing our spiritual perception of what he can do in the present is to stay in constant remembrance of what he's done in the past. Commentator Kent Hughes said it this way. There is no better shield against spiritual blindness than Christian remembering. So here's what we ought to do. We should get into the habit of regularly remembering what God has done so that we can maintain the right perception of what God can do. That's the way it was in the Old Testament for Joshua, do you remember? 
Joshua took Moses' spot. It's the leader of the children of Israel. God gave uh, Joshua a command. I want you to lead my children into the promised land. I've promised it would be there for you. You just got to get there. And one of the first obstacles they encountered was the Jordan River. They had to cross it during flooding season nonetheless. But God helped them do that. But before moving on to the next thing to conquer, the priest of Israel took 12 stones from that riverbed carried them to a place called Gilgal and built an altar as a memorial. You remember that? Why did they do it? So they wouldn't forget what God had done for them. They set up a regular reminder of what God had done so they would never forget what God could do. And you can be sure that Joshua returned back to Gilgal regularly and to this altar because Gilgal was the headquarters for conquering the promised land. This is the place Joshua came back to after victories. It was the place Joshua came back to in the midst of battles. It was the place Joshua came back to after defeats, particularly the defeat at Ai. Why? So he could gather wisdom and gather strength and gather faith from that memorial. We have to have our own Gilgals. Our own piles of stones that help us recall the past memories of God's deliverance. Are you hearing me? I'm talking about something visual that we can see on a regular basis to keep our spiritual perception where it needs to be. If you've been in my office, you'll see what is hanging up on the wall is something I see every day. And it reminds me of something very, very important. It's just a simple little picture that says this. God has. God can Every day I walk in, I turn into my study, I see that and I'm reminded that what God has done in Fellowship Baptist Church, he still can do in Fellowship Baptist Church. What God has done in broken marriages that I deal with, God can still do in broken marriages. What God has done in helping sinners break free from the chains of sin, God can still do today. What God has done through the faithful preaching of his word through decades behind this pulpit, God can still do today. What God has done in my family, what God has done in my life, what God has done in everything I'm involved in, he can still do today. It brings me faith and wisdom and strength to be reminded. I need a Gilgal though. I need something visual. I'm adding to my visualization and my reminders this week because starting tomorrow morning at 9 o'clock, I'll get a reminder on my phone from Monday all the way through next Saturday until I preach the next message out of Mark. And and the reminder is simply going to say this, God has. God can At nine o'clock every morning, I will look at my phone and it will say, God has, God can. You don't have to do that, but maybe you should have a daily journal recording God's past provision and victories in your life. For some, your Gilgal can be a place. I'm talking a literal place that you get alone with God on a regular basis just for the purpose of remembrance. No distractions, no hurriedness, no busyness. Just you and God, the Holy Spirit, your Bible. It's your Gilgal. For some, it can be a song. I'm talking about a go-to song that you play that reminds you of who God is and what he can do. For some of you musical people, it might be that song. For some, it's a person. You know when your spiritual perception is just not tuned in, you know who you need to get around. 
You know the person that picks you up and gives you the right perspective again. That's your Gilgal. It doesn't matter what it is. You need something or someone that provokes you on a regular basis to remember who your God is and what he's done in your life. Because you got an enemy picking at you constantly. Telling you God can't. Oh, he knows better. He's just the father of lies. In your marriage, he says, God can't. In that habit you're trying to break, he says, God can't. In the person you're praying to get saved, he he says, God can't. Your job situation, he says, God can't. With your health, he says, God can't. You need a daily reminder, a pile of stones, a Gilgal that reminds you, God can. Because God has. This is what it takes to nurture and maintain the right spiritual perception. There is no better shield against spiritual blindness than Christian remembering. In 2007, a former child prodigy, a a world-renowned violinist, experimented at a metro station in Washington. His name was Joshua Bell. Josh threw on a baseball cap and he decided to play his violin at this metro station to see how many people would recognize him. He even opened up his violin case to see if people were kind enough to leave him a donation. Joshua's friend and top-notch conductor, Leonard Slatkin, predicted that out of 1,000 people, he said 35 to 40 would recognize him for who he was. He predicted that 75 to 100 would actually stop and listen, and he predicted that Joshua would at least make $150 in donations. Unfortunately, his friend overpredicted. In fact, out of 1,097 people that passed by that day, only seven actually stopped to listen. Only 27 gave money when they were passing by. Only one person recognized Joshua for who he was. Think about this. The violinist who could command thousands for each concert performance on some of the greatest concert stages in the world only had one person recognize him. 1,097 people were in close proximity to one of the world's greatest violin players. Yet 1,096 of them did not perceive who he actually was. Because close proximity doesn't guarantee good perception. I wonder how many in here today are in close proximity to God, but you're lacking spiritual perception of God. God has used circumstances, people preaching, all kinds of things to kind of tune you in. You know, like the rabbit ears. Try to tune, you haven't stopped coming to church, but you're just not tuned in. There's been repeated exposure to God's work in your life without an appropriate response to it. You haven't nurtured your spiritual understanding. You develop a progressive insensitivity in your heart that has led to spiritual blindness. And so when everybody is loving and enjoying in the midst of great worship and prayer and fellowship and connecting and preaching and praying at an altar, you don't even know what's going on anymore. It's a dullness of mind. It's a numbness of spirit. It's an insensitivity of heart. Don't think that because you're at church that it's guaranteed you'll be close to God. 
in perception. We could have Pharisees among us. Not lost like the Pharisees, blind like the Pharisees. If that's you, I echo the words of Jesus. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. Beware of thinking that close proximity to Jesus automatically leads to a good perception. My message to you today as your pastor is this. Stay as close to God as you can. But be careful to nurture and maintain your spiritual perception of God. Or else you'll go blind. And you'll get to a place too where you will not be able to recognize Jesus for who he is and what he can do. Maybe if you're honest, you're not even close to God today and you know it. I think I rung the bell in some people's lives because you are close in proximity. You haven't stopped coming to church altogether. You're still serving and giving and singing and praying and all that kind of stuff. It's great. In proximity, you're there, but you know your heart's not where it needs to be. It's dull. It's calloused. You're insensitive to the things of God. You know where you are in your spiritual life. But I think there are some in here today and you know you're not even close to God. You can't even, you can't even claim to be in close proximity outside of being saved. You haven't been to church in a long time. Haven't read your Bible in a long time. Haven't been in your prayer closet alone in a long time. Haven't been back to your Gilgal in a long time. In fact, if you went back, there probably wouldn't be stones there anymore. You're far away from God and by his grace and in mercy, he nudged on your heart to be here today. Directed us to Mark chapter 8, verse 1 through 21. Not so that you could be scolded and condemned and judged, but so that you could be reminded. You could be warned. Don't go any further with a hard heart. Don't walk any further away from the Father. Turn around right now. His grace is ready to receive you. Redeem your regrets. Pardon your sin. Put you on a new direction. Even give you grace to bear the consequences of your sin. Jesus will do that. And some of you here today, and maybe you are a lost Pharisee. You're blind not because you're unable to see. You're just unwilling to. And you're in the same boat of the Pharisees. You've almost, you're, you're almost to the point where, where you're just willfully rejecting Jesus. Maybe some of you teenagers that are made to be here today. You don't get a choice. And the more you have to come to church, the more you hate it. Just like the more the Pharisees had to see Jesus, the more they hated him. And so they finally got to put him on a cross. And you know well in your heart, you're not saved. You just keep pushing away and pushing away and pushing away. And the more you feel like you have to be here because your wife made you be here, your husband made you be here, or your parents made you be here, or you just feel guilty if you're not here. The more you come reluctantly, the more you hate. If that's you, repent today. God's grace is waiting for you. Well, I, I just haven't had a good attitude. I need to kind of get that in. No, 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 no. Jesus will take care of all of that. You come to him with humility. He'll forgive you. If you're far away from him, he'll forgive you. If you're close in proximity, but you're not tuned in, come to an altar. Get it started today. Say, God, help me, help me to get back in the habit of remembrance. Stand to your feet, every head back.